transform a world. So today, we're going to study the book of John. My name is Brandon Scott. I'm a pastor here. There's just two of us. It's me and Treb. And uh, so, if I've met you already, nice to see you. If not, I hope to meet you later. But we are going through a study of the book of John. We just finished, I don't know how long y'all were in the book of Acts. I was actually in Guatemala then. I don't know when you started, but uh, it was a long time, like uh, older than some of your children are here. Actually, most of your children, because we've popped babies out at a prodigious rate. But uh, we just finished a, a long study of the book of Acts, and now we're starting another long study of the book of John, because that's kind of what we do here. So we're going verse by verse through the book, and I don't know how many weeks we are into this thing. It doesn't really matter. But we have gone through the, uh, the introduction of John, which is really the first 18 verses of chapter 1, this magnificent, one of the greatest probably things ever penned by, by people is the first 18 verses of the book of John, and it, where it lays down that Jesus is God, not a God or some different God, but the one true God, and that that is Jesus, and he is the, the incarnate word of God, God made flesh, God with skin on. They want to know what God looks like. We look to Jesus, and then it passes into these testimonies, like from John the Baptist, where John the Baptist testifies to who Jesus is, and we see John's own testimony about who Jesus is, and then we start moving into, uh, you have Philip and Nathaniel, and then or, or Andrew and Peter, and then Philip and Nathaniel, and you have these, these other guys that become Jesus' disciples that he calls to himself, and they also testify about who he is. And of course, we believe now because of the testimony of, of the people who walk with Jesus and who wrote, wrote it down, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, we now have the reality of who Jesus was. And so that brings us into chapter 2 where uh, one of our elders, Stephen Pittman, last week did a beautiful job of, of looking at this miracle in Cana at this wedding where Jesus takes these jars that the Jews were using to clean themselves ceremonially, and he changes what they'd used to clean themselves into this wine. And it was a part of a celebration, and it's this incredible look at uh, a glimpse into some of Jesus' glory that he takes what we use to clean ourselves and, and, and changes it into something Totally different. So we're going to continue in chapter 2, and we're going to be in, in verse 12. We're going to look at Jesus cleansing or clearing the temple. But before we get into that, let's, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for spring, which everybody's told me has kind of sprung early this year. I love it. It's life and green things and bugs and birds and, and warmer weather, and it's a beautiful day. It's renewal. We love you because you are the living God and you are not something we carved out of wood or stone or metal and bow down to and burn things to, but you are a God who indwells us and we love you. As you sit in your seat today, I want you to just think about a person who is next to you. And I, as Trey mentioned earlier, we all bring stuff in here. Disappointments, fatigue, exhaustion, sadness, depression, anxiety, life. Pray for that person in front of you or behind you, next to you, that they would surrender to Jesus right now and accept what he wants to teach them through his word. That they would be experienced the, the deep and wonderful freedom of surrendering to Jesus. Pray for yourself that, that God would teach you what he wants to teach you today, whatever that would be, that you would listen 
to the word, that we would think well. Pray for us as a congregation that we would observe and interpret and apply well the scripture today. Pray for me that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing to our Lord Jesus, who is my God and our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we love you. Teach us through your word today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 12. And uh, there's really kind of three sections here. You've got 12 through, uh, through 17, and then you get 18 through, through 22, and then the last couple of verses there, 23 through, through 25. And so we're going to kind of chunk these up a little bit and read through them and study them. And it starts off in verse 12. It says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. So anytime it says after this in the Bible, right, or therefore, you've got to, you just can't just not know what that's from. And so it was right after the wedding at Cana, this miracle that Jesus had performed. And it says they went down to Capernaum. The Capernaum's on the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, if you've got your mental map. If not, the, your Bible has one in the back. But uh, it's on the shore of, of the Sea of Galilee, and they had been up in Cana and had gone down uh, to the shore. And it's uh, Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers and his disciples, the same folks who were there in Cana, and they stay there for a couple days. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So you read a lot that they go up to Jerusalem, right? Uh, when really, when, when uh, Capernaum was actually north of Jerusalem. So for us, right, we go up, that means north, and we go down south. And, but in the geography of that area, Jerusalem was higher than those places. And so they literally had to walk up the mountain to go to Jerusalem. So when they go up to Jerusalem, it's because it's higher in elevation. So in the Psalms of Ascent, starting in Psalm 120, those are the songs of ascent. They're ascending to Jerusalem. So whenever someone's going up there, it's up in elevation. And then it says, in the temple courts, so they're in Jerusalem now. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he uh, walked out and gave them all a hug. No. He makes a whip out of cords and drives all of them from the temple area, sheep and cattle, and they scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what is going on here? Because this is not the Jesus that we see in paintings holding the little lamb with the perfectly, you know, the perfectly done, you know, white Jesus with the blue eyes and the, uh, Jesus was a Jewish guy, by the way, he probably looked a lot more like a terrorist than uh, what we see in pictures. But this is not the Jesus you see like hugging children, bringing, let's look at what he does here, right? So he's in the, uh, in the temple, and I have a visual aid, which I'm not very good at, but they get stuck up here. There you go. You see that blue arrow? That was me. It's my, uh, I put that on there myself. Um, and uh, so this right here is actually a, uh, a model. This is not, this doesn't exist anymore because the Romans burned it. But the, uh, this is a model of the temple complex or what's called the, uh, the temple mount. In the, uh, on the right, upper right-hand side there, you'll see those four towers there. That's the Antonia Fortress. That's where Jesus was taken to be scourged uh, before his crucifixion. On the left, there's this long uh, roofed column area. That's probably where the Sanhedrin met. So Jesus was judged and accused there. 
they marked across. Look at this lower left-hand corner, that corner all the way down to the ground. During that time, that was a 140-foot drop. So this is a massive, massive structure. Herod had built this because he wanted to build something that was better than Solomon's temple, and it was bigger. And in the center, you'll see that blue building there. That's really the temple proper. At the back end of that is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant should have been, uh, but wasn't anymore. In front of that is where the, the, the showbread was and where only the Levitical priest could go in. Right in front of that is the place that had uh, a, a big bath to wash themselves with, uh, the Jews, and, and, and altars to burn burnt offerings. And just in front of that would have been the women's court where a Jewish woman could go in. Of course, she couldn't go in any further than that. So that's surrounded by a big wall, right? So outside of that, where the blue arrow is pointing, that's the court of the Gentiles, and that's where Jesus is. So when he comes in, he's going to that court of the Gentiles, and that's where he sees men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So we're, we're going to engage our imagination a little bit here. Because this is a, that, that's a model, right, of a, it's actually a, a scale model of a place that really existed, right? And I think it helps for a couple reasons. One, just to give us a visual aid of, of what it would look like. But two, to remember that there was a real place. That Jesus made a real whip out of real cords and, and smacked real cattle and yelled real words and turned over real tables. He was a real person. Real people got mad at him and real people really crucified him and he really rose from the dead. It's not a Disney movie. It's not something somebody made up. It actually happened as a part in history. We often, I think, forget that. The reality of Jesus, he's real, not like made up. And so I want to engage our imagination here. I want you to imagine that you are there with Jesus, and you walk up, and you've walked all the way from Capernaum, right? And you're probably tired, and it's probably happened around April, middle April. And imagine yourself just, close your eyes on me for a second. Don't do anything weird or fall over, but just... Close your eyes on me for a second and imagine that you're there in that court of the Gentiles. And you look up and you see the Antonia Fortress and you see this giant temple. You can smell the smoke from the altars burning. You hear cattle, sheep. You hear dove cooing. Uh, you can feel the grit on the stone. You smell the smell of Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people packed into Jerusalem at this time in an era before uh, deodorant was invented. And you've got dirty feet, and you can feel the warmth of the sun, and you can hear the clink and the clank of, of coins being exchanged, and you hear the lowing of cattle, and that's where you're at. So open your eyes again, and I want you to think, this is what Jesus walks into. And look at how he reacts. He makes a whip out of cords. And he drives from this temple area, from this court of the Gentiles, sheep and cattle. And then he takes the coins of the money changers and he scatters it. I love this idea. I mean, boom, they had to change money because the Jewish temple didn't accept the Roman currency. So they had to change it. And anybody who's ever exchanged money knows if you go to a foreign country and you have some pocket money and you come back into the airport and you exchange money in the airport, you're going to get hammered. I mean, they're going to take as much money from you as possible because that's how money changers make money on the exchange rate. And so these guys were changing money over so that they could donate to the temple. And then he overturns their tables. He throws them over. And then look at verse... 16, it says, to those who sold doves, it's like, why does he point them out? He yells at them. 
get these out of here. Get the doves out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? So we lose something in the translation there. Some of your versions may say, uh, turn my father's house into a house of merchandise or a house of trade. In the, in the original language, it's a, there's a play on words there where it says, how dare you turn my father's house into a, a house of business, is what Jesus is saying. So that's what they had done. They had taken this Gentile court and turned it into a place of business. But Jesus is mad. Like he's mad. And I started thinking about why, what's the deal with the doves? Like, why is he so mad about that? And, and it made me think back to uh, Luke chapter 2. So I want you to just briefly run with me to Luke chapter 2, where Jesus goes into the temple. Oh, by the way, in case you're wondering, stick your finger in Luke there. And, and in this story in John, there's, uh, this story happens before Jesus' ministry. Now, in the other Gospels, you'll see back in, in, if you're taking notes, in Matthew chapter 21 and in uh, Luke, or uh, Mark chapter 11 and, and Luke chapter 19, is the same story. It's in all four Gospels. So, but as you have this, this story there, a question arises, well, is, is this the same event, him clearing the temple, or is it two different events? Uh, and there's probably books written discussing that. Scholars, of course, disagree because I, I don't know what else they would do. Because if you think if they all agreed, I guess they'd all have to go get different jobs. But they disagree on whether or not there's two or one cleansing. For our purposes today, if you want to jump into that at another point, go for it. Uh, it doesn't really change how we're going to apply, uh, observe, and interpret and apply this passage because Jesus is going to do the same thing, whether or not he had two cleanings of the temple or just one. But let's go back with me to Luke chapter 2, starting in uh, verse uh, 22. I'm just going to run through this real quick. This is after Jesus is born, right? So it says, When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Mary, uh, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two pigeons. So that was in there because if you couldn't afford a, a, a cow, you could afford a goat. If you couldn't afford a goat, everybody could afford a pair of doves, right? They were cheap. And that's all Joseph and Mary could afford was two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was a righteous, who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, the same temple courts where Jesus is at, in the court of the Gentiles. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms. So this Simeon, this old man, has baby Jesus in his arms, right? And he says this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So why would God have a court of Gentiles around his temple? if he was the God of the Jews. Because he wanted to save the Gentiles. He wanted them to come into the court to see the Jews worshiping God and for those people to worship the true God. And so Jesus gets brought into this 
court of the Gentiles and gets dedicated when he's an infant to be a, he is the light of the Gentiles. He is their light. And so he comes in to this court of the Gentiles, the whole purpose of which is for people to worship God. And what has happened there? They've turned it into a business. And he gets mad, like angry. Anger, by the way, is a valid emotion, okay? It doesn't stay valid uh, very long, usually with me. Uh, I'm like, I have righteous anger, and then two seconds later, uh, I lose it. So, but uh, this is the angriest you'll see Jesus. He is angry enough to go and intentionally take uh, a bunch of cords, make a whip out of it, go in, smack some animals, yell at people, throw their money around, and overturn their tables. I mean, it's not like he's just walking around, high-fiving guys and saying, hey, can y'all just, I mean, really, please? This is, no, I, we shouldn't do this. I, oh, come on, please leave. I, please. He's not doing that. He's not asking anyone to leave. He's hitting people with a whip and he's kicking them out, all right? So, the, the, like the whole, Jesus is kind and generous, and, but he's not like a snuggle bear. He's the one true God in human flesh, and he is angry. And then his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So I look up the word zeal, right, in English, and it's not zest. I found out that's a different word. That's the stuff you get off of citrus fruit. But zeal, it gets this, it's a really big definition, but listen here. Because when you think zeal for your house will consume me. So it is a strong feeling of interest and enthusiasm that makes a person very eager or determined to do something. It means great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. It means enthusiastic devotion and passionate fervor. Dedication or enthusiasm for something. Someone with zeal is willing, energized, and motivated. To consume here is, it means to consume your, his physical, the physical powers of Jesus the man were consumed by emotion. Get that? They were consumed by emotion. It makes me wonder whether or not I'm a very zealous person. Uh, it's March Madness, right? You get zealous about your bracket. Mine is, mine is dead to me now. But if, what is it that we're zealous about? I want to return to that question in a little bit here. And uh, let's keep going through the text here. So verse 18 says, Then the Jews demanded of him this, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this. So what are the Jews asking for? What did the Jews not say? Did the Jews say, you can't do this? You can't overturn the tables and throw the money changers out and kick the cows out? Notice they don't say that. Because I, I think every part of them knew that what was going on was wrong. They knew it was wrong. So they don't say, why did you do that? You shouldn't do that. How dare you? You shouldn't judge people. They didn't say that to Jesus. They said, what miraculous sign? How can you prove your authority to do this? You have no authority to do this. They asked John the Baptist the exact same question, right? What does Jesus answer? Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. 
then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Uh, don't put the picture back up, but I want you to remember back in the picture, that blue building in the middle, right? So in the text here, if you go back to verse 14, it says, in the temple courts. In verse 15, it says, he drove all of them from the temple area. But then Jesus says, destroy this temple. And the Jews replied, build this temple. And John writes in 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. So there's two different words that are used there, okay? Two different Greek words are used to describe the area. The, the, the temple area was a different word than what Jesus used. The word for the temple proper, meaning the sanctuary or the holy place where the Jews worship, where only the Levites could go, where only the a high priest could go to the Holy of Holies once a year. That was a Greek word called, said, naas. And so when Jesus says, destroy this temple, he's not talking about the court of the Gentiles. He says, destroy this temple, the word that they use to describe their holy of holies. He says, describe the, destroy the holy of holies, and I'll bring it back in three days. And they don't get it, as they often don't. Because they say, well, we can't destroy it. It took 46 years to build it, and it's still being built. And you're going to build it in three days? And does Jesus even correct them? He doesn't go on to explain it, right? Because what have they asked for? They asked for a sign, a miracle. And what does Jesus answer them? You want my authority? Kill me, and I'm going to come back. You want the sign that will show you the authority that I have to clear these people out of the temple? Murder me. And in three days, I'm going to raise from the dead. There's your authority for you. Now, they didn't get it. And it says in verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples, what? Recalled or remembered what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is coming in. He's clearing out this court of the Gentiles. And he's saying to these Jews, destroy the holy place here, the very center of your culture and your religion. Destroy it. And I'm going to raise it up in three days. Remember that Jesus never actually entered into that temple in his earthly ministry because he was of the tribe of Judah. He couldn't enter there. He was not of the Levitical tribe. He couldn't enter the temple. Now, he'd obviously, he'd been in there before because he's God. And not in that temple, because God never entered that one. But in Solomon's temple, he was. And so, Jesus had never even gone in that building. Isn't that amazing? Jesus never went in that temple. <laughs> and after three days, I'll raise it. So you have him clearing the temple. You have the Jews demanding a sign and Jesus, one, prophesying his resurrection. And then in verse 23, you have this. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and they believed in his name. So I want you to look at the verbs here real quick. If you turn all the way back into verse 13. So Jesus comes in and he sees guys selling and sitting, Right? and exchanging money. They're selling and sitting. Jesus comes in, he drives them out, scatters, and overturns the tables, and then he, he says, but he yells to them. Then the Jews demand of Jesus, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority? And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple in three days, and I will raise it again. In three days, I'll raise it again. Then in verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled or remembered, and then they believed. 
verse 23, many people saw the miraculous signs and believed in his name. So that word, believe, uh, right there in the book of John is the, the Greek word pistuo, and it's in there 99 times. 99 times just in the book of John, and it's always a verb, never a noun. It's never like, I have faith, I have belief. It's a verb, believe, it's an action. 99 times in a one book. It's probably the most important verb in the entire book. And again, we lose a bit in the translation here. In verse 23, when it says that he was doing, uh, they saw what he was doing and believed in his name, and as that verb, pistuo. Then it says, but Jesus would not entrust himself. That's translated from the same verb. So, uh, you could say he was, they saw what he was doing and they believed in his name, but Jesus would not believe in them. Why not? He knew all men. He did not need a man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Jesus did not need someone to tell him what was in the heart of mankind. In the book of Jeremiah, he writes in chapter 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can know it? In the very next verse, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. The Lord knows our heart, our deepest, darkest, most terrible things. The Lord knows it. And he came anyway. It's incredible. So what do we do with all this? Let me ask you a question. What are you zealous about? Do you have zeal for anything? Um, so I experienced some unintentional zeal this week in my favorite place in the world, which is the Belle Isle Walmart. <laughs> and uh, actually... I like that I can buy cheap things at Walmart. Uh, I don't like them when I forget something. Uh, you know, I'll get like all 10,000 steps on a Fitbit just buying milk. It's ridiculous. But part of that is because I'm, I'm trying, anyway, I'm not very good at shopping. But I was there uh, on Wednesdays, you know, the whole, I leave and going home and send Jenny a text and say, hey, you know, do you need milk or whatever before I go home? So I go and I'm in the popcorn aisle and uh, it says popcorn on the sign. You can find it there. So and I, I, uh, I'm leaving, have everything, and I'm making good time, right? I'm pretty proud of myself, actually. I'd gone, no, no, uh, no crazy roots, pretty direct, and I'm walking out, and this uh, very nice young man, I mean, probably 20, uh, comes up in a tie, and not a Mormon tie, uh, but no placard, and uh, comes up, and he goes, hey, do you believe in God the Mother? And the thing that goes through my head is, I don't have time for this. I am supposed to, Jenny's at home, I've, I've got to get home and do the evening stuff, right? You've got you to feed kids, you clean kids, put kids to bed, clean up stuff, reload. It's like a four-hour process. And so, and I've got to go home and you've got you to go, right? There's no sidelining at the Scott house. It's everybody's all in. And I just think, I don't, I don't have time for this. And then a little whisper just says, just, just listen. And so I answered him, and I said, no, because there is no God the Mother, because that isn't true. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And over the next 15 minutes, uh, what 
what passed was nothing short of probably a confrontation or a verbal spar, uh, where this guy continued to use the uh, only the Bible, which he mentioned multiple times, to back up his point that there was a God the Mother. I won't get into all the details, uh, but it didn't uh, go super well. I, I, uh, I tried to reason with the young man, and uh, he was taking me through texts and lots and lots of texts, and he was exceedingly manipulative. And I told him that he was manipulating me, and I told him to stop manipulating me, and that his tactics won't work, and da 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 that salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ, that if you believe in your heart that God, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you are saved, and that is enough. He didn't go over too well. His, uh, his compadre came over. They're always in pairs, right? And so he, uh, he came over and uh, was asking me lots of things, and Finally, they called me. He said, I will not throw my pearl before swine. And so I said, thank you for calling me a pig. And then it kind of broke off. But at that point, I was, I was mad. I wasn't mad because he'd argued with me or because he tried to manipulate me. I actually don't care about that. I mean, I have four children that try to manipulate me all day long. But uh, I wasn't mad at him for that. What got me mad was that I have a decent knowledge of the Bible. And I know Jesus and I love him. So that when a, a guy comes to me and starts spouting manipulative lies, it's, I spot it. But if someone else had been in my place and he had come and talked to them, he might have drawn someone away from the truth. And so I was m- mad. I was zealous. I had great energy and enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective, which was to tell this guy that he was lying. And I told him to his face that the devil had blinded the eyes of his heart and that he was a tool of the devil. All right? (laughs) This is how it went. So in Walmart, people are scattering like, like roaches when the light goes on. So they take off and I go to check out. But not before turning around and at the top of my lungs yelling in the bell at Walmart, do not believe what they're saying. They're telling you lies. It is not the truth. <laughs> this sweet lady was squatted down like this buying cereal. And she just looks up at me and just goes, I'm so sorry. And uh, then this really kind elderly gentleman is walking past me. And I could still see the, the, the two deceivers walking up the aisle. And I turn to this guy and I say, do not listen to what they say. They're trying to lie and manipulate. The Bible is true and those guys are lying. And the guy's like wide-eyed. And I said, I'm sorry. I said, you must think I'm crazy. And he goes, well, it's it's okay if you are crazy. You're kind of acting like it. (laughs) So in shame, I walked and and then I wrestled with, of course, the checkout robot for two hours to get my stuff out. And I thought, I'm walking out going, Lord, why... And he just, he's, the, what popped in my head, this was this Wednesday, was zeal for your house will consume me. And I just thought, what am I zealous about? Um, what are you zealous about? Listen to this definition again. A strong feeling of interest and enthusiasm that makes you very eager or determined to do something. Great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. Enthusiastic devotion passionate fervor, dedication, or enthusiasm, being willing, energized, and motivated. Does that describe the church today? Probably not. Does it describe me? Well, it did for about a 15-minute span in the Bill Al Walmart, and I think I made a fool out of myself. 
And the Lord just said, sometimes that's okay. Because I guarantee you that people were shaking their heads going, what is this idiot from Galilee doing turning over the tables? I need to change my money in so I can go worship. I didn't bring a goat from Cana. I've got to buy one here and now I can't. Thanks, Jesus, for messing up my holiday plans. Is that not how we view things when Jesus interferes with how we do church? And that's exactly what he was doing here. He was interfering with how they were worshiping, trying to point them to true worship. All right, so we're going to end with, uh, with this. I want you to look back with me at verse uh, 22, where it says, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the Scripture. I want you to remember who this Jesus is that we talk about all the time. He is the God who comes and clears the temple. He made a whip. Of all the things Jesus could have done, he makes a whip out of cords and clears out the business from outside of the temple courts around the Holy of Holies. He is the one true God, the creator. You look back in Job, you look back in Isaiah, where God confronts people and says, excuse me, where were you when I made the stars? Hmm, what? Oh, silence. That's because you weren't there. Where God puts people in their place, this is the Lord Jesus. And I want us to look at, at verse 23, where he says that many people saw these miraculous signs and they believed in him, but he would not believe in them. There is a lie going around that... God believes in me. God believes in you. And that's, no, no, he doesn't. Because he knows what's in your heart and he knows what's in my heart and he knows it's deceitful above all things. He doesn't believe in us. He doesn't need to. Belief is always unidirectional. Surrender, dependence, trust, always unidirectional from the creature to the creator. Never, ever, ever, ever forget that God is God and I am not. Never forget that. But half of the theology written in books and spewed on the televisions today has nothing to do with that at all. They think, oh, God believes in me and I can do whatever. Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He knows me and he knows you. He knows all of us. But there's an incredible rest in that, right? I don't have to do something to make him believe in me. He just loves me. He just loves me. I don't have to convince him to do it. I don't have to manipulate him to get him to love me. He loves me simply because I exist and that I could do nothing to earn his love. He lavishly pours it on us. He lavishly gives us this grace that he continually pours out moment by moment that we can utterly and completely rest in him and who he is. If you've never written, uh, read a book, read, read a book called Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, um, I recommend it. It's amazing. In a chapter about God's infinitude, he says this, Because God's nature is infinite, everything that flows out of it is infinite also. 
We poor human creatures are constantly being frustrated by limitations imposed on us from without and from within. The days of the years of our lives are few and swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Life is a short and fevered rehearsal for a concert we cannot stay to give. And just when we appear to have attained some proficiency, we are forced to lay our instruments down. There is simply not enough time to think, to become, to perform what the constitution of our natures indicates we are capable of. How completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. God doesn't need us. Do you realize that? He doesn't need me. He doesn't need me to be up here. He doesn't need you to listen. He doesn't need you to love that person. He doesn't. He is needless. And because of that, he can actually love us selflessly in a pure, agape, selfless love. So when Jesus comes to the temple and clears it, when Jesus tells them, you want a sign? I'm going to raise from the dead. When Jesus says, fine, see my signs and believe in me, but I will not believe in you, I want you to rest in who he is. Keep tracking through this whole book of John with us. Jesus is God. He's the Lamb of God. He called these disciples. He made this water into wine. He clears this temple. And I want to invite you to go to this Jesus. Ask him to metaphorically clear your temple, right? I have so much crud in my mind, in my heart, that I need him to clear out every day. And every morning, I need him to clear it out again. And then by lunch, I'm like all full of crud again. And I need him to continue. And then I go to sleep, and I'm like, oh, Lord, clear it out. And then I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, why did it come back? And there it is. And then every day, he invites you to come to him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Let him in to clear, to clean, to do his thing. Rest in who he is and be zealous for him. Be zealous for him and let his zeal absolutely overtake you. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. So often wish that I did that better. Thank you for being who you are that we don't deserve your love, that you are utterly needless and we come to you in our utter need. Fill us, O Lord, with zeal for your house, for you, for who you are. As the psalmist said, better is one day in the court of the Lord than a thousand anywhere else. We would desire for nothing more than to know you to know your purpose for our lives and to live that purpose out. Give this church, I ask, Lord Jesus, an insatiable, all-consuming zeal for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Infect this body with it and send us out into the world with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's all stand and